He has been called the Apostle to the Skeptics and is the author of globally acclaimed books including The Chronicles of Narnia, The Tape Letters, The Problem of Pain, and many more. He was also the inspiration for Treebeard and The Lord of the Rings. In this episode, we are going to hear from the much-beloved Irishman people often forget was not English, C.S. Lewis. I'm Elise, and you're listening to Revide Radio. Clive Staples Lewis, or Jack as he was known for most of his life, was born in Belfast, Ireland in 1898. His father was a lawyer and his mother was a mathematician. He had one older brother named Warren, or Warney. He called his brother his dearest and closest friend. Lewis was reading by the age of three, and by the age of five was writing stories about dressed animals influenced by Beatrix Potter, whose books he adored. He and his brother formed a complex, imaginary world filled with talking animals called Boxen. You can find some of their stories in the book Boxen, the Imaginary World of C.S. Lewis. In 1908, just a few months before his 10th birthday, Lewis lost his mother to cancer. This caused his father to become withdrawn and aloof with his sons and damaged their relationship in such a way that it was never the same again. A few months after her death, their father sent them away to various boarding schools. Lewis became embittered against God for not answering his prayers to save his mother. He also found the religious exercises at his boarding schools to be, as he said, dull and contrived. His experience as a soldier during World War I only served to solidify his thought that the pain and suffering that he had both seen and experienced were incompatible with a good God. Instead, he became increasingly interested in various Celtic, Norse, and Greek mythologies. From 1914 to 1917, he lived as a resident pupil of William Kirkpatrick, whom he later referred to as the Great Knock, and credited him with instilling in him a love of Greek literature and mythology, and sharpening his debate and reasoning skills. Kirkpatrick had also been Lewis's father's tutor and served as the inspiration of Diggory Kirk in the Chronicles of Narnia. He entered Oxford in the summer of 1917. Lewis experienced a bit of culture shock when he first arrived in London. He said, No Englishman will be able to understand my first impressions of England. The strange English accents with which I was surrounded seemed like the voice of demons. But what was worst was the English landscape. I have made up the quarrel since, but at that moment I conceived a hatred for England which took many years to heal. He entered the officer training corps at the college in hopes of being considered for the army. At training, he was commissioned as a second lieutenant, and within months, he was shipped off to France. He arrived at the French front line at Somme Valley on his 19th birthday. A few months later, he was wounded from a British shell that had missed its target and was sent off to heal. He was discharged in December 1918 and then started up again at Oxford. Lewis credited the works of Scottish author, poet, and minister George MacDonald as part of what helped him turn to Christianity. In fact, in his book, The Great Divorce, the main character, who is semi-autobiographical, meets MacDonald in heaven in chapter 9. Here's a bit from that section. I tried trembling to tell this man all that his writings had done for me. I tried to tell how a certain frosty afternoon at Leatherhead Station, when I had first bought a copy of Fantasies, then being about 16 years old, had been to me with the first sight of Beatrice had been to Dante. Here begins the new life. I started to confess how long that life had delayed in the region of imagination merely, how slowly and reluctantly I had come to admit that his Christendom had more than an accidental connection with it. How hard I had tried not to see the true name of the quality which had first met me in his books is holiness. Most notably, he was helped along by J.R.R. Tolkien and other friends of the Inklings, a literary discussion group made up primarily of academics at Oxford who enjoyed reading and writing fantasy, but also enjoyed rousing theological discussions. He became a theist in 1929 and eventually became a Christian in 1931 when he was 33. 
He described his final surrender and surprised by joy. You must picture me alone in that room at Maudlin, night after night, feeling whenever my mind lifted for even a second from my work, the steady, unrelenting approach of him whom I so earnestly desired not to meet. That which I greatly feared had at last come upon me. From here, I want to skip ahead a bit and talk specifically about his BBC radio addresses. This audio you're about to hear is the only one in existence, despite him giving these talks for two years from 1941 to 1943. When asked why he thought he had been chosen to give the talks, he said, First of all, because I'm a layman and not a parson, and consequently, it was thought that I might understand the ordinary person's point of view a bit better. Secondly, I think they asked me because it was known that I had been an atheist for many years and had only become a Christian quite fairly recently. They thought that would mean that I'd be able to see the difficulties, able to remember what Christianity looks like from the outside. 1941 to 1943 was right in the fiercest part of the Second World War. Lewis had actually tried to enlist again but was turned down due to his age and served instead with the home front for those who were either too old or too young to properly enlist. These addresses were broadcast during the air raids of Germany's intense blitz campaign. They bombed Britain brutally for eight months during 1940 to 1941. These broadcasts were quite the hit, not just with civilians, but even with servicemen. Air Chief Marshal Sir Donald Hardman wrote, The war, the whole of life, everything tended to seem pointless. We needed, many of us, a key to the meaning of the universe. Lewis provided just that. His BBC broadcast would eventually be published and turned into mere Christianity. If you want to read the chapter for that message, you can find it in chapter 25 entitled Time and Beyond Time. Now, if you recall, when Lewis first came to England, he hated it thoroughly and completely. 24 years later, here he is still in England, talking over the BBC, comforting the very people he once despised, during one of the most terrifying periods of their lives as German bombers fly overhead, releasing their deadly cargo all over the British Isles. They turn on the radio and they heard C.S. Lewis, the reluctant convert, sharing the gospel with them. In these talks, I've had to say a good deal about prayer. And before going on to my main subject tonight, I'd like to deal with a difficulty some people find about the whole idea of prayer. Somebody put it to me by saying, I can believe in God all right, but what I can't swallow is this idea of him listening to several hundred million human beings who are all addressing him at the same moment. And I find quite a lot of people feel that difficulty. Well, the first thing to notice is that the whole sting of it comes in the words at the same moment. Most of us can imagine a God attending to any number of claimants if only they come one by one and he has an endless time to do it in. So what's really at the back of the difficulty is this idea of God having to fit too many things into one moment of time. Well, that, of course, is what happens to us. Our life comes to us moment by moment. One moment disappears before the next comes along, and there's room for precious little in each. That's what time is like. And, of course, you and I tend to take it for granted that this time series, this arrangement of past, present, and future, isn't simply the way life comes to us, but is the way all things really exist. We tend to assume that the whole universe, and God himself, are always moving on from a past to a future, just as we are. But many learned men don't agree with that. 
I think it was the theologians who first started the idea that some things are not in time at all. Later, the philosophers took it over, and now some of the scientists are doing the same. Almost certainly, God is not in time. His life doesn't consist of moments following one another. If a million people are praying to him at 10.30 tonight, he hasn't got to listen to them all in that one little snippet which we call 10.30. 10.30 and every other moment from the beginning to the end of the world is always the present for him. If you like to put it that way, he has infinity in which to listen to the split second of prayer put up by a pilot as his plane crashes in flames. That's difficult, I know. Can I try to give something not the same, but a bit like it? Suppose I'm writing a novel. I write, Mary laid down her book, next moment came a knock at the door. For Mary, who's got to live in the imaginary time of the story, there's no interval between putting down the book and hearing the knock. But I, her creator, between writing the first part of that sentence and the second, may have gone out for an hour's walk and spent the whole hour thinking about Mary. I know that's not a perfect example, but it may just give a glimpse of what I mean. The point I want to drive home is that God has infinite attention infinite leisure to spare for each one of us. He doesn't have to take us in the lump. You're as much alone with him as if you were the only thing he'd ever created. When Christ died, he died for you individually, just as much as if you'd been the only man in the world. And now I'll get back to my main subject. I was pointing out last time that the Christian life is simply a process of having your natural self changed into a Christ self, and that this process goes on very far inside. One's most private wishes, one's point of view, are the things that have to be changed. That's why unbelievers complain that Christianity is a very selfish religion. Isn't it very selfish? Even morbid, they say, to be always bothering about the inside of your own soul, instead of thinking of humanity. Now, what would an NCO say to a soldier who had a dirty rifle, and when told to clean it, replied, But, Sergeant, isn't it very selfish, even morbid, to be always bothering about the inside of your own rifle, instead of thinking of the United Nations? Well... We needn't bother about what the NCO would actually say. You see the point? The man is not going to be much use to the United Nations if his rifle isn't fit to shoot with. In the same way, people who are still acting from their old natural selves won't do much real permanent good to other people. Let me explain that. History isn't just a story of bad people doing bad things. It's quite as much a story of people trying to do good things. 
but somehow something goes wrong. Take the common expression, cold as charity. How do we come to say that? From experience. We've learnt how unsympathetic, patronising and conceited charitable people often are. And yet hundreds and thousands of them started out really anxious to do good. And when they'd done it, somehow it just wasn't as good as it ought to have been. The old story, what you are comes out in what you do. A crab apple tree can't produce eating apples. As long as the old self is there, its taint will be over all we do. We try to be religious and become Pharisees. We try to be kind and become patronizing. Social service ends in red tape and officialdom. Unselfishness becomes a form of showing off. I don't mean, of course, that we're to stop trying to be good. We've got to do the best we can. If the soldier's fool enough to go into battle with a dirty rifle, he mustn't run away. But I do mean that the real cure lies far deeper. Out of ourselves and into Christ, we must go. The change won't, for most of us, happen suddenly. And I must admit that for most Christians, it'll only be beginning to the very end of our present life. But there are some in whom it goes further, even before death, far enough for you to see it. Their very faces and voices are different. When you meet them, you know you're up against something which, so to speak, begins where you leave off. Something stronger, quieter, happier, more alive than ordinary humanity. Now, that's just where Christianity, as I think, has the real answer to a question a lot of modern people are asking. Everyone's heard of evolution, how men evolve from lower types of life. And people often ask, what's the next step? When is the thing beyond man going to appear? Some imaginative writers even try to picture what the next step will be like, but they usually end in nonsense about men with six arms or wings or something of that kind. But the Christians think those people are on the wrong tack. The next step has already appeared. The next step is from being mere creatures to being sons of God. The new kind of man appeared in Christ. And other new men, little Christ, are already to be found, dotted here and there about the earth. We Christians don't call it evolution because we believe it isn't something coming up out of blind nature, but something coming down from the world of light and power and knowledge beyond all nature. But if you like to call it evolution, do. The next step is here. You can become one of the new men in Christ if you like, or if you prefer, you can refuse the step and sink back. Now, if we take the step, it involves losing what we now call ourselves. That doesn't mean that all the people who accept Christ are going to be exactly like one another. I know it sounds as if it did. If there's one Christ, and he's to be in us all, 
actually replacing our personalities with his own, what difference will there be between us? Now here I've got a rather difficult thing to say. On the one hand, it isn't true that we shall lose our personal differences by letting Christ take us over. On the other hand, I don't think Christ can take us over as long as we're bothering about what will happen to our personality. Can I take the first point first? If a person didn't know about salt, wouldn't he think that anything with such a strong taste would kill the taste of all the other things in any dish you put it into? We know that as a matter of fact, it brings out their real taste. Well, it's rather like that with Christ. When you've completely given up yourself to his personality, you will then, for the first time in your life, be developing into a real person. He made the whole world. He invented, as an author invents characters in a book, all the different men that you and I were intended to be. Our real selves are, so to speak, all waiting for us in him. What I call myself now is hardly a person at all. It's mainly a meeting place for various natural forces, desires and fears, etc., some of which come from my ancestors and some from my education, some perhaps from devils. The self you were really intended to be is something that lives not from nature, but from God. At the beginning of these talks, I said there were personalities in God. Well, I go further now. There are no real personalities anywhere else. I mean, no full, complete personalities. It's only when you allow yourself to be drawn into his life that you turn into a true person. But on the other hand, it's just no good at all going to Christ for the sake of developing a fuller personality. As long as that's what you're bothering about, you haven't begun. Because the very first step towards getting a real self is to forget about the self. It will come only if you're looking for something else. That holds, you know, even for earthly matters. Even in literature or art, no man who cares about originality will ever be original. It's the man who's only thinking about doing a good job or telling the truth who becomes really original and doesn't notice it. Even in social life, you'll never make a good impression on other people until you stop thinking what sort of impression you make. That principle runs all through life from the top to the bottom. Give up yourself and you'll find your real self. Lose your life and you'll save it. Submit to death, submit with every fiber of your being and you'll find eternal life. Look for Christ and you'll get him and with him everything else thrown in. Look for yourself 
and you'll get only hatred, loneliness, despair, ruin. Prior to his conversion, C.S. Lewis considered the Roman philosopher and poet Lucretius to have the strongest argument for atheism. In his most known work, On the Nature of Things, he says loosely, Had God designed the world, it would not be a world so frail and faulty as we see. After his conversion, he said, My argument against God was that the universe seemed so cruel and unjust. Just how had I gotten this idea of just and unjust? A man does not call a line crooked unless he has some idea of a straight line. What was I comparing this universe with when I called it unjust? Thus, in the very act of trying to prove that God did not exist, in other words, that the whole of reality was senseless, I was forced to assume that one part of reality, namely my idea of justice, was full of sense. Consequently, atheism turned out to be too simple. If the whole universe has no meaning, we should never have found out that it has no meaning. If you enjoyed this episode, please be so kind as to review us on Apple Podcasts wherever you listen and spread the word. Thanks for listening. I'm Elise, and this is Revive Radio. Revive Radio.